Thank you all for being here tonight. I love gathering on Wednesdays for these studies. Um, uh, my, my wife informed me that I usually start with my head down and say, turn to Genesis 33 and just kind of start, and that it seemed um, awfully uncordial. And so I want to, in a very cordial manner, thank you all for being here. I really enjoy Wednesday night studies. I love digging in Genesis with you all, and uh, it's a treasure every week. And so she's not even in here, so I can get credit for this. Uh, she's in the nursery. Y'all make sure at the end, if you don't get anything else out of tonight, let her know that. And that'd be fantastic. So that said, let's pray and then we will dig in. Lord, we thank you very much for our time. Um, Lord, as we consider reconciliation again this week, uh, I'm really burdened that we would understand it better so that we'd walk in it. Uh, we, we talk a lot about walking in the preached word and the taught word. And I think that the area of reconciliation for most church bodies is something that we're just not very good at walking in. And Lord, my prayer tonight is that you would use the word and use a whole lot of satellites to expose truth so that we can understand it, so that we can be transformed by the renewal of our minds, and so that we can walk in that truth rightly biblically, because we know it's biblical obedience that most greatly glorifies and honors you because it reflects your character and it reflects your will. I beg for that tonight. Lord, we pray that you would sharpen our senses as we read through a large volume of scripture tonight, that we would be able to see the points that need to be connected and the connections that don't need to be missed. Uh, as it is important that we are transformed uh, by the renewal of our minds. Lord, we thank you for our time ahead of time. We thank you for the great grace and mercy that you've shown us by allowing us to gather and not having to whisper and, and able to open our Bibles and to exercise that as a freedom in Christ. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for a finished work that's very much outside of us. I pray that tonight as we consider that finished work as an example that, that we would... Um, be beloved children. And I just don't think we're naturally good at it. So I'm really thankful for a work that exists outside of us and a righteousness that is counted to us that exists in Christ. We love you very much. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up to Genesis 33, please. Last week... We read through Genesis 33 for the first time, and what we saw was uh, Jacob meeting up again, seeing again Esau, who he has not seen for about 20 years or so. And I would like to just read through Genesis 33, and we'll go from there. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. Now, why is that concerning? He doesn't want to get killed. That's a great answer. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, Zilpah and Bilhah, and Leah with her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. Why is that funny? Or sad, depending on if you're Zilpah or Rachel. 
Yeah, there's a little bit of favoritism going on here, and there's a human shield around the beloved hot wife, and then the servants, and then the ugly wife. And, and so it's just, it's silly, and it's laughable. Verse 3, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now, why is this surprising? Yeah, when they parted, they parted on Esau is comforting himself by planning how he wants to kill me. So uh, mommy says run to Laban. And so I'm going to run to Laban and just stay there till Esau isn't mad anymore. And here 20 years later, uh, he is returning and, and he is going to the land of Bethel. Why is he going to Bethel? Why has he been called to go to Bethel? I think I answered the question, who called him to go to Bethel? God. There we go. Um, God said, go home. Go back to Bethel, where we entered into this covenant. And so that's the whole reason he left Laban's house, and he's heading back home. And here he's encountering Esau, his fear. He has been wrenched inside, just almost crippled. And, but then he makes a plan, and, and he's moving forward, and oh, what's going to happen? He wrestles with God. He realizes his fear is supposed to be the Lord, not Esau. But here it kind of comes to this very anticlimactic situation where Esau weeps and they're hugging each other and crying like sisters, not brothers, and, uh, and it's not what we would have expected. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. So Jacob points to God and he says, these, these children, these aren't my doing. These are God's doing. This family, I'm blessed. We're blessed beyond uh, understanding, beyond anything we can achieve on our own. And we want to give credit to God. Then the servants drew near, and they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Now, what's amazing about that? All four wives with children drew near and bowed down. Not one of them did what? Ran away? Yeah. Not one of them ran away. Not one of them threw Jacob under the bus. And no one punched Esau in the nose. And that's amazing. Because you see uh, a possibility for reconciliation here because the family's on the same page. If you are not living together in an understanding way with your wife as you are called to, you will further promote difficulty within your family as opposed to trying to be reconciled and peacemakers who are blessed, which we'll talk about more later. Verse 7, verse 8, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So Jacob's saying, accept these gifts, don't kill me. Accept these, these gifts, don't kill me, but really accept these gifts. And Esau says, man, I'm I'm good. I don't really need your gifts. It's okay. And we see Esau being particularly merciful and graceful, oddly enough. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Why is he so urgent about giving him the gift? Restitution. Yeah, he's making right or wrong. Sometimes it's not enough to just say, oh, my bad. 
Like, oh, I borrowed your car and I wrecked it. My bad. Maybe some restitution is in order. Maybe file the insurance claim. Get the car fixed. Don't just give back pieces of it. Make it right. And here he's providing restitution in a sense. It's not perfect. Restitution's never perfect. We talked last week about you could have a loved one who was killed in a car accident and they gave you millions of dollars in a settlement. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it perfect. It's restitution. Restitution is never perfect because you're always settling for something less than what was at least a perceived best or a more desired outcome. And he urges this on Esau who accepts it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way. Let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to them, My Lord knows that the children are frail, the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Here we see the drama queen and Jacob coming out a little bit more. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, Let me leave some of my people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth. So so he lied to Esau. He said, I'll meet you in Seir. And then he went towards Succoth and eventually to Shechem and built himself a house and made booths for livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padan Aram. And he encamped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, last week we considered this, and it led to the majority of the time being spent talking about the issue of reconciliation, which is where we're going to also spend the majority of our time tonight. Why would Jacob deal graciously with Esau? Esau, the brother who wanted to kill him, why would Jacob deal graciously with him? He's afraid. Is that a heart change? And what caused the change in his heart? Yeah, God dealt graciously with him. That's a really important thing because all of us are going to stink at dealing graciously with anybody if we are not very keenly aware of the fact that God has dealt very graciously with us. It's supposed to affect us. It's not supposed to be something that happened at some point randomly. And yeah, I think God probably dealt graciously with me. We should have a keen awareness of how gracious God has been towards us. And it will greatly affect how we will deal graciously with other people. Now, what was Esau's idea of reconciliation? Yeah, buddy, buddy, let's do this thing. We're brothers. We're going to move forward. Let us dwell together. Let us move on. Let us journey together. What was Jacob's idea of reconciliation? Yeah, we're cool, but we're not together on this journey. What are the differences between Jacob and Esau? Jacob is a Christian, and Esau is a, yeah, say that again, a vessel of wrath. Yeah, we we see two very different brothers here. And when did their differences start? In the womb. Because of who? God. This is very important. This gives us background. We need to understand reconciliation and how it works and how it is different between believers and unbelievers and believers and believers and even believers within the same local church, which is something that I hope to get to tonight. 
So Jacob's Esau idea of reconciliation and Esau's idea of reconciliation are different. Um, there's a reality that I have just, I mean, it's just a very stark reality. I have not had much time to prepare notes tonight because I've spent a lot of time dealing with reconciliation. It's funny how God does that. I'm like, God, I have to study. No, 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 you need to go help with reconciliation over here. Yeah, but it's really important I read more. Yeah, but there's some people over here who need to be reconciled. Oh, okay. Or there's an issue over here. There's something over here. And so it's been humorous because I've been complaining about not having enough time to consider reconciliation because I'm too busy with reconciliation. And so um, what that does, though, is it brings a really stark reality into focus. And that reality is that injustice is not uncommon. If you're writing down something in your notes, you can write that. Injustice is not uncommon. What are some of the ways that we have seen injustice as a common thing in our Bibles and in our own lives? We'll start with the Bibles. Where, where have we seen injustice in the Word? How Jesus was treated? Well, let's define injustice first. What is injustice? Both. They inform each other. Okay, fairness could be a way that maybe justice is defined. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And our standard is a spiritual standard. Our standards are not worldly. Worldly injustice can really just be broken down into that's not fair. But fairness is redefined for the Christian. How is fairness redefined for a believer? Yeah. Do you, do you want fairness? Why do we not want fairness? Yeah, the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. We have no righteousness outside of Christ. So if it's all a matter of fairness, we're getting God's wrath because we're completely unrighteous. We don't want fairness according to a worldly standard. We beg for mercy, grace. Mercy is, I'm not going to give you that which you deserve because what we deserve is what? His wrath. So it's, it's redefined for us. There's, there's a, a bigger picture that should affect the way that we encounter each other. So what are some other ways that we've seen injustice in the Word? With Christ. Stephen? Yeah, how was that in an unjust situation? Falsely accused? Hated for no reason? Abel, yeah, that's another one. How, how is that a picture of injustice, injustice? Worshiping. Yeah. Aromatic, sweet, pleasing to the Lord, glorifying. Jealous. Cain was jealous. Yes. I was going on the able side. Sorry. 
Yeah, Cain was jealous of Abel simply because he brought a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord, and he killed him. And then he said, what am I, my brother's keeper? And so when we quote that and say, what am I, my brother's keeper? We're quoting a murderer. Don't do that. So reality, injustice is not uncommon. What are some ways that you have experienced injustice in your own life? Just so it's clear, Patrick did not flip that guy over. It was his fault. Injustice. But then you're wrongly accused after that, and you're painted a picture as a villain. Yeah, that's, that's real. What else? You don't have to give, like, super spiritual answers. There you go. <laughs> you know, no. We're not laughing at you either. Nice. Horses are hard to hide. No. <laughs> what else? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not uncommon. One of the things I want to consider tonight is where there is not forgiveness and where there is not repentance, there will be no reconciliation. Why is repentance important in reconciliation? Yeah. Yeah, repentance is a turning from sin. So you cannot be reconciled and perpetually moving forward in sin. There has to be repentance. Now, why must there be forgiveness for there to be reconciliation? Say that again. Yep. There has to be. Yep. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's a difference between imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. If we believed in something called imparted righteousness, we would be saying that God made it so that we now know how to act right. But the reality is that, that we are recipients of imputed righteousness, which means Christ is right. And that rightness is counted as yours. And it's different. We read that quote from A.W. Pink last week about um, we are, uh, we're counting an enemy as a friend. It's not, I'm going to make it so that we can necessarily be, it's I'm counting you not as my enemy. I'm, I'm going to count you as my friend. Where there's not forgiveness and where there's no repentance, there will be no reconciliation Another thing that is not uncommon is an improper dealing with issues of reconciliation. What are some ways that we improperly deal with adversity? Because adversity is what leads to the need to be reconciled. We've either sinned against God or we've sinned against each other or we are, uh, the things 
it's a sin to do the wrong thing, but it's also a sin if you do not know, if you not do that which you know is right to do. So ultimately, we could need reconciliation because we've sinned against God or we've sinned against each other. And sinning against each other and God, we can either not do something we were supposed to do or do something we were not supposed to do. Is that clear? Okay, as mud. Fantastic. You do the wrong thing, it's wrong. But if you don't do the right thing, it's wrong. That's another way of saying that. So what are some ways that we improperly deal with adversity and differences within our relationships? Avoid people? Dirty look? Oh, talk about them behind their back. We're fantastic at that, sadly. Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of my favorites is the... Do you know how I can be praying for them? You're cloaking gossip, and I want to pray for them, and I need some details, some juicy details for my prayer. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of pastors who, rather than being pastoral in times of adversity, they are political, which means you divide camps, you pick sides, and you brave the storm. And whoever's still there after you brave the storm, y'all won. That's not how we, we operate as believers. We don't pick camps and then set them up and work against each other. But most of us probably grew up in churches that had that in large part. The first time I ever read Galatians 5... Division, enmity, strife, anger, and dissensions. The first thing I thought of was the deacon meetings that I knew of growing up. Growing up, That's the definition of the flesh, by the way, not the spirit. I thought of deacon meetings. I thought of differences within the church. Dissension, division, enmity, strife. Yeah, that's pretty normal. Are they describing the church? Oh, no. They're describing sin. We're supposed to put it to death. Oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense. We're not very good generally at dealing with adversity. We talk about people behind their backs. We don't go to them when we should. We allow something to be perpetuated that should never be perpetuated. Yeah. Yeah. This is a real problem that pretty much everyone in this room could be part of in the snap of a finger. Don't hold grudges. Don't perpetuate gossip. And don't go to someone else before you go to the person that you are not square with. This is a huge problem. How would you feel if I came to you and said, I was talking to someone who heard from someone else that you did this? And I just, you know, I love you. I want to make sure you're not living a life of sin. What, where are you at? What's going on? How would you feel? Betrayed, but I love you. And I don't want you to sin. Why do you feel betrayed in that situation? Yeah, that's a problem. 
If it has to go through three or four people before it gets to the person who's the actual, who there's the actual issue with or the concern or the difference or the not being square with, that's a real problem. And we're really good at perpetuating that problem. There are many times where it is very easy. Hey, what do you think about this? Oh, I don't know. Or, hey, this is uncomfortable. Will you talk to this person about this? I heard this over here, and they were there, and I, I just don't. Will you, since you know them, talk to them? That's a mess, an absolute train wreck, and it's unbiblical. Now, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I want to paint the picture that you don't receive it as love if you're talked to by someone who has concern for you, who got that concern via this person, via this person, via this person. Because now you're thinking, how did it get from there to there to there? And inevitably, when it gets to this person, this person changed it a little, and that person may have changed it a little, and this person may have changed it a little, and it comes to this person, and I'm talking to you, and I'm saying, so you killed someone. You shot them? No. You were angry. Oh, okay. Well, I heard you killed someone. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just kind of gets perpetually worse as it's talked about and as it's filtered through. So, dealing with reconciliation, being reconciled, what are we reconciled to? Uh, this picture of reconciliation that we run into in Genesis 33 is a picture where they're not necessarily buddy-buddy teammates, but they are reconciled with one another. And this took us to 2 Corinthians 5 last week. Go ahead and turn there. Now, from this point on, we will hit a lot of verses. Um, we're going to look at a lot of different satellites so as to be able to uh, hopefully have a really robust picture of what to do with anger, what to do with uh, misunderstanding, what to do with something you hear, what to do with being wronged, what to do when you have wronged someone and you really would rather not talk about it. We're going to hit a bunch of satellites from this point forward. So if you don't have a Bible, there's these blue ones in the back of the pew. Feel free to make it your own, write in it, take notes, take it home. Otherwise, we're using our Bibles. Everybody needs to be flipping from this point forward. 2 Corinthians 5 Verses uh, 14 through 21 says this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What does that say about those for whom Christ has died? Those professing believers, what does that say in your own words? Your life is over. You live what? For Christ, which means what? Don't live for yourself. We're really good at being self-serving. What else? Does someone have something over here? Yeah. It's not my kingdom. It's not my throne. Yes, which is really comforting. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. That means we once looked at Christ as just a prophet. Maybe he was crazy, maybe not. Maybe he was just a good guy. Maybe he's a good guy to pattern your life after. That's fleshly. Now we're looking at Adam as King, Savior, and Lord. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So now if he has died for you, you no longer live for yourself. You live for him and you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. The old does not linger necessarily and, and perpetuate cycles of dissension and enmity and strife. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, some questions came up last week, and I want to just kind of walk and wade through the questions. We'll probably do this a little bit more next week with a bunch of scriptural satellites. One of the first questions is, who is my enemy and how do I act toward them? The second question that I've heard, these are questions that were either written down, asked afterwards via email, whatever. How can we know or decide that we have reconciled enough? When does the determination that we've reconciled enough become the retaliation spoken of in Matthew 5, where it says, if they're repentant, you forgive. If they repent, you forgive. Seventy times seven, if they repent, you forgive. When you, whenever you say, okay, we're reconciled enough, how do you keep from going towards being one who is steeped in retaliation? Is it different between people inside the church and outside of the church? What if I try to reconcile and they won't return my calls? What happens then? What if you really want to be reconciled with someone and they say, no, I have nothing to say to you? What if they're a believer and they say that? What if they're not a believer and they say that? What if they're a professing believer that's not being fruitful and they say that? How does this affect my worship? What if reconciling possibly brings harm to my family? That's a question from someone in this body. I feel the need to be reconciled to this person, but last time I saw this person, it was kind of like Jacob and Esau. That person was threatening me. So if I go to pursue reconciliation, I'm sort of opening a door to possible harm with my family and my spouse. When coming to give our offering, are we responsible for all the grudges and anger and all the enmity that people may feel against us? We'll consider Matthew 5 in a moment. Do you stop worshiping as long as someone feels like this about you? What about being hated by the world? Because we're going to be hated by the world, right? But if someone has a grudge against me when I bring my offering, I go to them, but we're supposed to be hated by the world. How does that jive? Do you forgive a person who is unrepentant in their sin? Those are hard questions. Those are really hard hard questions. If you hope tonight to learn everything there is to know about reconciliation and forgiveness, it's not going to happen. But we have to know these places in the word that we can go to understand them. And we have to be a part of a conversation and we have to make sure to not make these very easy steps of disobedience along the way. It's very easy to take a step in the wrong direction. When it comes to being at odds with someone, not square with someone, it's very easy to make a wrong move, to pick up the phone and have a conversation you shouldn't have had, to say something you shouldn't have said, to do something you shouldn't have done. We need to come in very, very low when it comes to the issue of reconciliation. A lot of times we can have a misperception, a wrong view, whatever you want to call it, that in order to be reconciled, I, I, I will prove my case and show you how stupid you are so that you can understand my vast knowledge and submit to my authority. That's, a, that's pretty real. I mean, you see it in your kids when you're trying to say, no, that's wrong, and they begin to argue and, and say things that are like, that was a pretty good argument. You're wrong. You're going to get a spanking, but that was a good argument. We, we, we try to, to, uh, to reason our way through that, 
Um, and we try to sometimes just think that, well, we'll be reconciled when you get on my page. That's not a picture of biblical reconciliation. What we're called to do is come in very, very low. And what I want to offer as we look at a bunch of scriptures here in a moment is that possibly we are guilty of the sin of idolatry. And our idol might be ourselves. Uh, I want to read something. Um, I would offer that many of us are less eager to be reconciled when it is needed because of the sin of idolatry and our idol may be ourselves, me. My idol may be myself and it keeps me from wanting to truly be reconciled no matter what to someone that I am not square with. If the thrust of our life is, is about how we are viewed, if the thrust of your life is about how you are viewed, if the thrust of our life is about how others see us and what others think about us, then the logical response to being slandered, the logical response to being wronged, misquoted, hated, etc., would be to get even, to hold a grudge, or prove the other person wrong. And the purpose of this would be to make sure that our unblemished glory is kept on display for all the world to marvel. So if someone says something about me or brings something up or um, communicates something to someone that maybe misrepresents the way I think I need to be misrepresented, I'm going to hold a grudge. I will get even. I will speak truth so that my unblemished glory is still on display. Because for a lot of us, that's what our life is about. Do not think anything wrong about me. And a lot of times that can be cloaked in righteousness and you can say, I'm an image bearer. I don't want anyone to think anything wrong about me. I put God's glory on display through my life. That's very true. But oftentimes we'll cloak it in righteousness when the reality is it's just about me. I don't want people to think ill of me. Marvel at my glory. However, we are not image makers. We're image bearers. There's a difference between being an image maker and an image bearer. What do y'all think the difference is? This is, I think this is harder in a small town, frankly. What do y'all think the difference is? Yeah. Yes. Yep. How so? Explain that. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, if you wanted to be a celebrity, what would you have to do? We're image makers right now. If you want to be a celebrity, what do you have to do? Wear a meat suit? What else? Meat dress. All about you? Create an image. Yeah, you, you, your name's got to be out there. Whether it's good or bad, publicity's, all publicity is good publicity. What else? I mean, really, if you're just going to follow the footsteps of making an image, what are you going to do? Get your name out there. What else? Talk about yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it takes, make me that. What else? Yes. But in order to do that, what do you have to have? And how do you get that? Image, fame. You have to be whatever it is that's 
Yeah. You could lie, cheat, and steal. If you were to pick up a magazine of image makers and say, I have to do what they did. Let me read about what they did. What would you read? Yeah. Everything done. Yeah. Uh-huh. 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 Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's absolutely where we're going. The, the image maker is more worried about their own glory. The image bearer is worried about God's glory. That's how it breaks down. As I, I was really soberly punched in the spiritual face this week as I was considering this, if your greatest concern is your own glory, reconciliation is going to be really, really hard for you. If your greatest concern is your own glory, reconciliation is going to be very, very difficult. I was thinking back through my own life and growing up, I really didn't do a lot of things necessarily, but I wanted, to think pe- I wanted people to think that I was capable of doing a lot of things. <laughs> so I didn't join choir, but I wanted people to think that I could sing. I didn't want to sing publicly, but I wanted them to know I wrote a song. I never spoke out in a crowd, hated the idea of it. It gave me this horrible feeling of, oh, I just want to not ever be in front of people don't look at me. However, I do want everybody to think that I have something very profound to say. <laughs> I tried out for the basketball team. Uh, I changed high schools mid, mid-high school career and tried out for the basketball team. And the coach said, uh, you'll make varsity. That's fine. Uh, however, I've been working with these guys since they were in ninth grade. So really, honestly, you're going to be a practice dummy. So I didn't join the basketball team. But I wanted everybody to know I could. I could, yeah, I could. But I'm not going to do it. The reason is, if I go out there and I put it on the limb and I, and I do something or I say something, we would have these, my youth group was the most bizarre, weird thing. Looking back on it, I'm just thinking, weird. That was years of weird. And we would go on mission trips and we would have the open mic, share time. And I always had something I wanted to say, but I was so in angst at saying something dumb that people would then think, oh, you really aren't very eloquent. So what I would do is I would wait. We got the open mic. Does anyone else want to say anything? I'm like, no, and I wouldn't. But then someone would come up afterward and say, look like you had something you wanted to say. And I, I did. I'm eloquent and profound. But I'm not very public. I'm just not public. It's all about self-glory. But if you put yourself out there and you do something silly or it turns out you're not as good at singing or your song that you wrote stinks or what you said was not eloquent or profound or insightful, you're not astute, you're not scholarly, whatever. If you put yourself out there, it's like, oh, 
dang, I proved something wrong. But, but if you're all about your own glory, you can really weave something together that says, I want everyone to see me in a certain light and kind of marvel at what it could be, but I'm just not a show stealer. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's all about perpetuating your own glory. And if your greatest concern is your own glory, then reconciliation is going to be very hard because one of the things with reconciliation is forgiveness and it is coming in low and it does have to do with, recon- with um, uh, being um, settling for something less than what would have been the absolute best. Yeah. Yeah, Bill Cosby had the comedy act. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. 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 You show it. You prove it. You live it. Um, Richard Baxter talks about when he's preaching, he says, most of the preaching that he does is not the most fruitful thing. But when you go to their houses and you sit with them and say, now what I preach meant this and that applies in this way. And is your family doing this? That's when it would come to fruition because rather than saying what was good, he was actually showing them what was good. You don't, you don't just speak it, you model it. And um, turn to Matthew 5. It, it is a worship issue. And it's interesting because Matthew 5 kind of spins something that maybe we otherwise would, would not have completely expected. 521. Here's what I want you to know. Your life cannot be about your glory or reconciliation is going to be very hard. However, while it is not about your glory, you should care what other people think. Like sometimes we jump to the kind of the uber conclusion, like I'm not about my own glory and I don't give a rip about what anybody thinks. Those don't go hand in hand because you can be, I'm not about my own glory, which is very loving because that means you're about the Lord's glory and you're displaying something that, that helps people to see and understand a love that is otherwise unspeakable. But to say, I don't give a rip about what people think is unloving. Here we see those two worlds come together to show what it does in worship for us. Matthew 5, 21 through 26 you have heard it said that those uh, said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, Matthew 5, this is where Jesus is taking everything and just kind of turning it upside down. Like he's saying, you think you're good because you didn't murder. Well, you got anger in your heart. You're a murderer. What? Then I must not be righteous according to my own standard. And he's like, yeah, that's the point. I'm righteous. You need me desperately. So that's what he's explaining here. You've heard it said to those, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Why would you say that to someone, you fool? Your perception, okay? Why else? Yeah? Why would I call someone a fool? Angry, because they don't see things my way. You're a fool. By whose standard? My standard. That's what's happening here. Yeah, Paul Tripp, yeah, he had a great thing. He said, are you so upset because your law has been broken or God's law has been broken? Are you up in arms because you just disobeyed my rule? 
Or is it God's rule that you're concerned with? Because that'll lead to showing whose glory you're most concerned with. So if you, listen to this. So if you are offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. I mean, Jesus really, like, this is not going to end up good. If you continue in this. Now, what causes you to be, I mean, we're talking about worship. Imagine you're here for worship. The only offering you bring is not the offering that goes in the plate. You're bringing a sacrifice of praise. I'm coming to sit here in corporate worship and they pray. That's, we're worshiping corporately. This is a picture of corporate worship. We go to sing. This is a picture of a corporate sacrifice of praise. Why would you turn from there a very important thing to go see a brother? Why? What does it say here? Yeah, and why is reconciliation needed? Yeah, this is oftentimes misquoted. A lot of times it's, hey, if you've got something against someone, go take care of it. This takes it a step further. Do you like talking to people who you know have something against you? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. What does this mean you absolutely must consider as part of your wholehearted worship? What are you not allowed to forget or look over or ignore? People you have wronged. We are very good at keeping a record of wrongs of when others have wronged us. This says as part of worship, you need to make sure you don't have some hidden list or ignored list of ways you've wronged other people. You're not allowed to live for your own glory and wrong other people and come to worship. What Jesus is proclaiming here is it is easier to bring a sacrifice of praise and a sacrificial offering than it is to be reconciled. That's what he's offering. He's saying... It's a lot simpler to come here and praise the Lord and open the word and be disciplined in it than it is to go to someone that you have wronged. You've wronged them. Some of us are sitting here, when is the last time you gave thought to how you may have wronged someone? The reality is it should have been our last time of corporate worship, at least, When we gather, have I wronged anybody? Am I not square with someone? Because God's saying, he's not going to accept my offering. He's not going to accept this worship. It's like lukewarmness, which he spits out of his mouth. We should care about how others feel, but that care should lead to humility 
and reconciliation, not just proving them wrong. There's a note from Piper that I wanted to share with you. He talks about pursuing reconciliation versus making reconciliation happen because there may be a thought of, okay, that's cool. They're mad at me because I did something wrong. I'm going to try to make it right. I'm going to try to, uh, to ask forgiveness. I'm going to try to come in low. Um, maybe there needs to be restitution in some manner, shape, or form, but I want to make this right. But the reality is you cannot force reconciliation to happen. You can't. Has anyone in here tried to be reconciled with someone and it didn't work and it's heartbreaking? Okay. Matthew 5, 23 through 24, which we just read. He says, I think he means if you remember in this week that someone has something against you because you've wronged them, as much as it depends on you, try to be reconciled. Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it depends on you, So far as it depends on you, live at peace. That means what it says. You make every effort. There's not ever a time where you can say, I will not make an effort. It's that important because division misrepresents God. Division says, Ephesians 4 says we're one in Christ, but I don't like that guy. Or I don't care that they don't like what I did. Or you know what? They should just have a little more grace and we'll be fine. Division misrepresents God. So as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do everything you can. But sometimes there's nothing you can do to overcome it. Sometimes you have to live with the reality that I'm not being forgiven. He makes the point. You can hear two qualifications of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. We're responsible for what others hold against us when it is owing to real sin or blundering on our part. If I have sinned against you, if I have blundered, if I have done that which I'm not supposed to do, or if I have not done that which I am supposed to do, which really opens the door. Consider your roles. Consider yourself as a parent, as a deacon, as a friend. Have you done that which you are supposed to do? If not, it's sin, and you may need to be reconciled with someone because you dropped the ball when you shouldn't have. If it's owing to real sin or blundering on our part, we're responsible for what others hold against us. You should care about it. It is not loving and it is not Christianly to say, I don't care anymore. That's not okay. We're responsible to pursue reconciliation, but to live with the pain if it does not succeed. In other words, we are not responsible to make reconciliation happen. You're not responsible to make it happen, but you are supposed to pursue it. And what God promises us is that we have the help of the Holy Spirit, and other believers have the help of the Holy Spirit. He's our helper. He guides us to a way of peace. Now, in closing, turn to Zechariah 8.16. You have the regular ESV Bible, that is page 796. Reconciliation is not just a blurry middle ground that you're aiming to get to. It's not just not being mad. It's actual forgiveness. It's actual friendship. And the point of reconciliation is explained here in Zechariah 8.16. In this, the prophet 
is speaking towards a second chance that God would provide for Israel. They're returning from the Babylonian exile, and the prophet is speaking to the second chance that God will provide through his word. And it says this in 8.16. These are the things that you shall do. You, the church, who is different, who has disobeyed me, who has been in exile, who is being reconciled by my hand, this You, church, children of God, is what you're supposed to do. Speak the truth to one another. Tender, or render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. See the connections. Consider what is being connected in that one verse. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. When you don't pursue truth and when you speak with others about someone else in a gossipy way, that's devising evil in your hearts against one another. Don't do that. And love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. What we see in this verse is that reconciliation, we're being reconciled to the truth. If we want peace, there has to be truth. Where there's no repentance and where there's no forgiveness, there is no reconciliation. And where we desire to have reconciliation, we're aiming towards peace. And peace will not happen without truth. There are lots of shows on TV about how you work through your troubles. But the reality is people pursue that and there is no peace because it's not being recon- you're not working towards reconciliation towards the truth. What is the truth? How do Christians define the truth? The word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for everything that the man of God needs to be competent and equipped for every good work, for teaching, for reproof, for correction. We must know the word. And when we're aiming to be reconciled, we're not just, it's not necessarily this kind of blurry, ethereal, I don't know, I guess we're cool. Are we cool? Like, Are you cool? Do you like me? I, do I like you? Are we all right? Are we square? Do you? It feels, it feels weird again. Are we weird again? Be reconciled to the truth. And the truth says there are times that you will have to come in low and you will have to say, you have wronged me and I'm, you're my friend. You have wronged me and I am not going to keep a record of wrongs against you. Or I have wronged you. Please forgive me. What do we need to do to make this right? It may not be the same as before. But God's glory is put on display when we aim for peace and reconciliation by being reconciled to the truth. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your, in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. I want to close with a quote from Spurgeon. He tells how his heart was set on wing by the pardon of God. All of this will be much easier if we are less concerned with our glory and more concerned with God's glory. If we say, I want to put God's glory on display and not my own, It makes this whole process that is already difficult and already tedious an act of worship. We're not even just going for ease. We're going for worship. And his view of how he was pardoned by God changed him in the way that he viewed others. He said, my life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. But oh, the blessed gospel of God, of the God of grace came to me. And with it a sovereign word, deliver him. And I, 
who was but a minute before as wretched as a soul could be, could have danced for the very merriment of heart. And as the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon that I have found. Your whole perspective has changed. I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. And years later, he added to this, to be forgiven is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it. So he's saying as sweet as honey is, to be forgiven of something is sweeter than that honey. Honey's practically tasteless. But yet there is no one thing sweeter still, yet there is one thing sweeter still, and that is to forgive. As it is more blessed to give than to receive, so to forgive rises a stage higher in experience than even to be forgiven. Have you ever been forgiven of a wrong, even just within your peers? You ever had that humbling experience where you're like, man, I screwed up. Will you forgive me? And you're forgiven. And that sweetness there, the sweeter thing is forgiving. Do you have a real understanding of how you've been forgiven divinely in Christ by God? It is a sweet act of worship to forgive, to aim to be reconciled, to aim to promote and persevere through trial, aiming at peace by being reconciled to the truth. God has done amazing work in us, and it should change the way we act towards each other. We're going to talk more about some details next week. We're going to go to Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. We're going to go to Ephesians 4.32. We're going to look at Isaiah 53.7, a sheep before shearers. And we're going to look next week at Matthew 18, these levels of reconciliation between believers. Let's pray. Lord, if any of us are sitting here right now holding a grudge against someone, I pray that we would leave here and go take care of it. I pray that if any of us are sitting here knowing that someone else holds a grudge against us, I pray that we would leave here and go take care of it. Lord, by your definition, by your guiding, our worship is affected when we are not reconciled with one another. And division misrepresents the unity that we have as a gift in Christ that was purchased by his blood. Help us to never, ever be okay with perpetuating a cycle of division and bitterness, knowing that bitterness is a root that defiles many. Lord, you are very good to us, and we thank you for Christ. We thank you for finished work on the cross. We thank you for reaching very low in your grace and in your mercy and reconciling us by the blood of Christ so that we have a right standing with you. You have made us friends. Let us never be okay with bitterly and smugly viewing others as enemies who don't deserve our friendship. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.